of jobs where if you describe something and then ask a soldier, is this NA or SCA, they will have problems answering. Um, and I think that's problematic. So I think going forward, you should name your pillars after what you hope to accomplish, right? They should be goal-oriented terminology. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for this episode. We're joined today by Major Mazi Markle and Sergeant First Class Max Steiner, authors of an issue paper submitted to the Civil Affairs Association, and it's entitled Developing Civil Affairs, Increasing Soldier Flexibility and Doctrinal Specificity. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Good to be here. Max, I wanted to start with you. Could you tell us you know, what you're doing for civil affairs right now, what's your position, and, and which unit are you with? Right, so I actually report to my co-author, uh, Major Markel, and uh, I've, I've been recently transferred into the 425CA. I've uh, yet to drill with them in the person. So I I was drilling with the 416CA in San Diego, um, and uh, when I was promoted, I had already been uh, deployed to Egypt. So I was deployed, you know, I was deployed uh, starting in October, and then promoted in January. And in the reserve side, when you're promoted, you were often transferred units, and I ended up in the 425. And uh, so that's where I am now. So I'm, I'm kind of in a long-term RST status, uh, but still reaching back a little to do CA as much as I can. That's great. Thank you. And Major Markell. Yeah, thanks. So essentially, the uh, I guess Max stands on the Charlie Company commander with uh, 425. So kind of actually new to the, the CA game, probably been with the Charlie Company. I've been boots on the ground now about three years. Kind of first was more of the team leader slash XO and picked that command maybe 10 months ago. But longtime side guy and kind of new to the, the CA game. Great. But love it. It's been a lot of fun. So. Well, that's good to hear. Sergeant Steiner, what do you do for your day job? Right. So I'm a diplomat with the Department of State. Um, I'm currently seconded as a civilian observer with the MFO. The MFO is a, a multinational organization that verifies the status of the Treaty of Peace uh, signed in Camp David between Egypt and Israel. So uh, basically we drive throughout the Sinai and a small portion of Israel and, and verify the troop levels are in accordance with the, the treaty. So it's been going on for almost 40 years now. And uh, so far they haven't gone to war again, so we view that as success. But yeah, it's a, it's a semi-diplomatic role, best understood as a peacekeeping mission. Major Markell, what's your day job? Uh, so for me, I'm a DOJ guy. So basically, uh, I'm an 1811 special agent with the DEA down here in San Diego. And just doing doing God's work, I guess, down here in San Diego with uh, you know kind of the anti-drug initiative. Yeah, that's good to hear. Well, gentlemen, let's get to uh, talking about your issue paper here. I want to start with you, uh, Sergeant Steiner. Can you talk about what led you to draft an issue paper that talks about CA doctrine and training? Yeah, so the, the short answer is I I checked the, the CA website, the CA Association website, and uh, I was reading the prior year's basically papers, and uh, some of them were very interesting. And I was like, wow, this is really great. And then I saw, I think in May, uh, that they were soliciting further papers, and uh, have a fair amount of time. Uh, my job, you know, I, it's, it's not exactly a deployment, but, you know, we're on a military base. Many times we're confined to base if there are situations outside. And so I had a lot of free time, and I can't go to the gym the whole day, so I decided I was going to brainstorm something and write it up. 
and I, I sent that to Major Markell and, and shot some ideas by him and, and talked to him, and uh, the paper kind of grew out of those discussions. When you, when you were brainstorming, what led you to training a doctrine if you consider the dot mil PF approach? Why pick out those two? I had never deployed as civil affairs. I have two deployments for a total of two years as an 11 Bravo uh, before uh, I went to college, before I became a diplomat. So I didn't feel completely comfortable talking about how CA should do its jobs. I felt much more comfortable uh, with the, the aspects of CA that I personally experienced, namely CA training and my exposure to CA doctrine. So, yeah, judging, just just going off of what I considered uh areas that I knew enough about to talk about. Right? I didn't want to come in and start swinging uh, without having experienced a CA deployment. And I think if you look at it, we we're kind of going back and forth the collaboration piece. And Sergeant Snyder, incredibly intelligent guy, I mean, a lot of experience, got some good training. And I think he had questions that I think a lot of guys that I've seen just throughout the last three years, smart guys, they come through the training and they go through CAQC or they go through the reclass. And it's there's just, there's still questions that they don't understand the doctrine, whether it's too broad. So, for example, um, you know, we look at, let's say, you know, just the pillars when we're discussing NA and SCA, you know, they'll say, you know, I, I don't get it. Like, I, I get it, theoretically. I understand the definition, but uh, it doesn't make sense. And my question would be, if you have guys that are, are super smart guys like Steiner, other guys in the ranks that are having the same questions, you know, where are we lacking as a branch, essentially, with our training? Right. Major Raquel, when you received the draft ideas from Sergeant Signer, how did you initially respond? Do you think this was totally on target, or was there a, a shift uh, more focused on training or more on more doctrine? Do you think it was pretty well balanced? No, I think he did a great job grabbing the paper. We basically went through, uh, there were some items in there that we kind of took out, uh, just kind of looked at the focus of it, kind of shifted the focus. So basically the, you know, the final submission that you guys have or the final page, the paper that he wrote up, it really kind of highlights the, I'd like to say the meat, if, uh, Steiner, if that's appropriate, you know, the meat of kind of his intent, where he was going with it. And then too, looking at it just from my perspective, you know, both on the SIAF side, the DOJ side, and then, you know, my short time here with the CA, but, you know, I think he's right on point. So, you look at what you have here. If you got a guy that, because my thing is this, Steiner's an exception, right? You got a guy that literally is doing CA essentially Monday through Friday, right? Yeah. Department of State guy has been, you know, both as in 11 Bravo, but also now kind of in a foreign environment with Department of State. He can go to a training and he can pick up, let's say, the CA tasks uh, and kind of come back and still be effective and be an operator because he has that, that civilian background where he can kind of cut through the meat, let's say, at the doctrine and, you know, come out as an effective soldier. My concern is I've got guys that, you know, they don't have that background. So, you know, they work in a, a grocery store, they're a student. And, uh, I don't think the training, the doctrine really fully addressed their needs. And I think Max did a good job describing that here on this paper. Yeah, that's wonderful. I look forward to reading the full paper when it comes out. Before we get to the training reforms and the doctrine reforms that you propose, I want to talk about the big picture and the future operating environment that you describe. And you argue that CA operators must prepare to work in a, quote, complicated environment of international and interagency actors. Moreover, CA soldiers must be able to explain and deliver CA capabilities to supported commanders, end quote. So to me, it sounds a lot like the same requirements of today. Sergeant Signer, how would you say the future operating environment differs from what we have today? Substantively, I don't think there'll be a big difference. And, and that's what I was trying to get across, is that I think that the status quo fights that we've done in Iraq and Afghanistan 
are the kind of engagements, the, the long-term, you know, nation building that the Army will have problems with and that CA will be most challenged by. And as such, I think, you know, we should be addressing our efforts towards making sure that if we get into an Iraq situation or an Afghanistan situation going forward, uh, that we are fully prepared to learn the lessons from our, I would say, challenges that we faced in Iraq and Afghanistan and address that. I think one of the big problems looking back is how the Army addressed Vietnam, and, and there was just kind of a denial for the next 30 years about we're just not going to do a Vietnam again. And, and we had to in 2001, right? I mean, like, you can argue that it was a political decision, but, you know, the Army went into Afghanistan in 2001, and it should have learned from what happened in the 60s and early 70s in Vietnam. And I, I think that we didn't really. Uh, a lot of lessons got forgotten. A lot of lessons got uh, pushed to the back of the institutional mindset. We wanted to do force-on-force engagements uh, with a near-peer adversary, and we weren't adequately prepared for counterinsurgency. Um, I think the next century, you know, we are going to be facing more conflicts like this. And that might not be the war the Army wants to fight, but I think it's the war the Army is going to have the most problem fighting. It's interesting to hear because I know the shift now in the Army has been back toward the near-peer threat and preparing at least to go head-to-head with countries like Russia or China. And there certainly is a shift away from what you're describing would continue. Right. And I don't want to be, you know, that, that started first class who thinks he's a general, right? Like, if you have a near-peer fight, you have one chance to win a near-peer fight. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we've had, you know, in the case of Afghanistan, 17 years. Um, 17 years of opportunities to win the civil affairs fight or at least influence the civil affairs engagement. So there is a difference in, like, where do you focus, big army, where do you focus uh, and between between that and, you know, like an armored brigade should not be focusing on CA tasks. But I think CA, the big challenge for CA will be challenges like Iraq and Afghanistan, where we're fighting long-term insurgencies that involve a nation-building component. Major Markel, what's your take on the future operating environment? Yeah, I, mean, I concur. And I think if you look at, let's say, if you take the near-peer fight, you're now all of a sudden rock Afghanistan, you know, your, your focus is smaller. I don't want to say the scope is smaller, but uh, the players, the different factors that are going to be involved, comparing it to, let's say, Russia, China, it's on a far more small scale. So I think it's critical when we kind of plan for those fights we are now on the CA side of it, we have much more adept you know, utilizing our, our UAP partners, NGOs, IGOs to be more effective. Because if we fail to do that, we're not going to be able to secure the fight. So, gentlemen, you propose some training reforms. So training reforms and doctrinal reforms. Let's talk about training first and then get to the doctrine. Could you describe what are the reforms in training that you're proposing? Two basic training reforms. One is to place more soldiers, active duty and reserve component soldiers, uh, into the Department of State internship program. So the Department of State uh, has a summer internship, but it's all year. Uh, the majority of students go in the summer, and this is basically for undergraduate and master's level students to go and experience the embassy life. Right? So they're typically two to three month trips down to a country, and then you work with uh, embassy offices within that country, and you'll get an understanding of how the embassy works and how the embassy interacts with other uh, unified action partners. You know, the embassy will just refer to them as NGOs, but we'll use the Army terminology and see how the whole of government approach works uh, overseas. And that's really valuable for a student studying political science or studying international affairs or with a regional major. 
but it's also very valuable for civil affairs. And I worked in an embassy, I worked in a consulate, and I saw that every student that came down benefited immensely from the program. And it just always struck me as something that this would be great for CA soldiers. Well, I think it would be amazing. Do you, how would that be operationalized? How would that, who needs to approve something like that as a broadening opportunity? No, I mean, we discussed it basically logistically, especially on the, the financial piece. So what Steiner's saying, and I think what's logical is you could probably have it to where you break it down, let's say by command. So for example, you know, we're, we're Paycom. So if you can work with, let's say, uh, you know, the recruitment folks that Steiner's talking about basically with the Department of State that typically organize those kind of internships. I think it's logical to send, I would say, two soldiers. So it's a buddy team for travel there and back. But essentially, billing is going to be provided by the Department of State as well as food. So I mean, from that standpoint, you're covered. AT days. So I guess the question would be, uh, I would provide AT days. I think that's something the units could look at for motivation for, let's say, their soldiers, uh, whether it's for recruitment. But uh, I think it's feasible. I mean, I really, if you look at it, you know, your, your DTS is going to be the biggest thing, DTS and the mandates, but uh, other than that, I think it's very feasible. Now, the question would be, let's say, if you have units that, you know, this RFX fight tonight, you know, style that we're now training and preparing for, most units are given more mandates. Their, their AT days are more robust. Even with, let's say, a, a CTC rotation that, on average, is going to take up 21 to 22 mandates and they're not participating in force regen, you know, there's the opportunity for having soldiers essentially, you know, cut down and just do force on force at a CTC, which is typically going to be the biggest operational requirement. That's about 10 days. And they could utilize the rest of their AT days to do these internships. So it's it's definitely feasible. Right. So on the State Department side, currently students pay, uh, interns um, pay their airfare down, um, and then they, they pay their incidentals, so, you know, meals and stuff, um, and they're housed typically with a, a foreign service officer. So in my time in Honduras and Tijuana, I have, over the course of four years, about 12 interns, um, not all at the same time. But most foreign service officers are given a house. Uh, that's just kind of the standard operating procedure, uh, just because it makes the housing pool more efficient. It's a long administrative thing. But there's a lot of spare beds in an embassy. And so interns just kind of go down and fill one of them. And you drive them in in the morning and they report to their office. You know, didn't that, they never worked with me. Uh, they worked with, you know, my boss or another section's boss. And, and then I drive them home at night. Uh, so it's it's very smooth for a student. You know, State Department is used to getting in people for these short-term times. Uh, State Department does pay uh, for their security clearance. So all of these people get a secret-level clearance, and obviously that's going to be a huge saving for civil affairs soldiers who come in with that. Um, so while figuring out who pays for airfare, who pays for meals for a soldier, uh, whether they're paid, you know, full salary and stuff, that's going to be something for the for the units to decide and. And I, I don't feel completely comfortable telling the Army how to do it. I, I think raising the issue and saying, hey, this is an opportunity. Let's look at this going forward, and then we'll kind of address that, that payment a little later. Who do you think would benefit the most or be able to assist the mission as an intern? Are, they, are we talking about mid-grade NCOs, junior officers, field grade? Who do you think should be included in the mix? I think the best candidates would be the candidates who look the most like State Department interns now, right? So your your college, uh, you're enrolled in college, so your your middle-level NCOs who may be taking uh, college classes during active duty, who may be in university, 
if they're on the reserve side. Um, your recently graduated junior officers within a CA unit, uh, you know, recent reclasses at, at the O3 level. So that kind of age cohort and the in the 20s, uh, and even coming straight out of high school, you know, like there are interns that come between their freshman and sophomore year, you know, and, and CA, they've got a, a strong, already a strong background in understanding kind of how the world works, just coming through the, the CA training, I think they'd be able to slot in as an intern in an Odyssey. But the problem as you get up more and more in rank is that, you know, you're less and less, uh, there is just Valuable. kind of a hesitance. Yeah, well... I don't think the problem would be on the soldier side, right? If a lieutenant colonel goes on an internship, it's just going to be hard for the embassy to incorporate him um, in an internship relationship, right? Like, there's respect for that rank. There's, and so it would, I think, it would hold it back a little. Um, I would be, I would feel really awkward if I had an intern under me and he was a lieutenant colonel, right? And I think that would apply to many State Department uh, diplomats. I, I mean, for me, my standpoint, I. Mean, I I agreed with Steiner on the respect of more of a college graduate to blend in more of the State Department. I personally would do more of a junior. I would focus on juniors, and that'd be both with, and I should say juniors like E3, 4, but definitely E5, E6, uh, probably O2, O3s. And my rationale for it more than anything else would be that you know, for a lot of these guys that have deployed, especially now the way the, the fight's gone, in a good way, they haven't had to worry about doing rotations constantly. You know, it gives them kind of a chance for some possibly some PME, essentially, you know, before any kind of, you know, deployment. So it's good for them to learn how to, I guess, to be independent, to be responsible, to tell them, hey, essentially, here's your, uh, here's your mission. And you and, you know, you and your brother, you guys are going to be going down to insert country for, uh, for a month. You know, this is your point of contact. This is your mission. Uh, you know, go ahead and integrate and make it happen. Because the big thing with the CA side of it, you know, the integration is key. So, I mean, I, for any of us, I me mean, any job, but I think especially for CA and PSYOP, uh, as well as you guys know, I mean, if you can't integrate, you know, you're dead in the water. So for these guys, part of the uh, experience, I mean, one of the big parts of the experience, just having to learn to go into an area where they don't know anybody. Uh, it's a different culture. You know, it's going to a support unit. It's a different culture. And they have to learn how to, to walk the walk, uh, to be considered value added, to kind of get a seat at the table. You know, by doing that, that's a, a great exercise for a lot of these guys that, that haven't done a real world. And that'll benefit them and their units. Completely agree. Sergeant Stein. Yeah, you can just edit out my response, John, and just go. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. Sergeant Steiner, can you talk about your second proposal for training reform? Yeah, so uh, case studies. This is something that I... I found incredibly useful at the undergraduate level. You know, it's, it's also used in upper graduate college levels. It's not so much used in high school. So a lot of soldiers come into the unit. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an NCO. I'm in charge of training these guys who come into the unit. And uh, they're just not exposed to how do you think methodologically about a case study. Like, how do you construct in your head, what it means. Um, and so instead of giving a class on what the case study covered, I was giving a class on what case studies were and, and trying to build basically from a knowledge state of zero. I think case studies are incredibly effective. I think they bridge that gap between just looking at a manual and reading about, you know, manuals are, this is the perfect situation and this is what you should do if you're in these conditions in a perfect situation. And a simulation 
in which you're involving, you know, role players, you're setting up an entire environment, um, you have to set, you know, terrain, and uh, it's a lot more, right? So bridging that gap between you have a book and let's go off a book and you have a, a full-on, you know, half-day operation that you plan for three or four days before case studies offer, you know, something in the middle. And, and what case studies also do that's very useful, especially in CA, is they allow us to cover suboptimal situations. So what if something goes wrong, right? You know, what, what happens when you're trying to build a school and all of a sudden the supportive unit just decides that they don't want that anymore, right? So we can look at situations in which that's occurred and then you take a step back and you analyze, hey, what were all the decisions that were made you know, either at the unit level, the supported unit level, at the CA level, uh, maybe at the local level, and see how they all interact um, and how all those cogs kind of turn and fit together or, or not, right? So I think case studies, probably the best thing to take away from case studies is that it's the best way to teach, to learn from failures and to learn from actual historical events, right? So doctrine's great. A doctrine is the foundation upon which you, you build your subsequent knowledge. Simulations are great because they basically force you to apply that knowledge. But case studies are great in that they, they let you learn from how other people applied or failed to apply the knowledge in a given situation. Major Markell, I wanted to ask you, what are some, when you're planning training as a company commander and your team chiefs planning training for battle assemblies, what are some examples of case studies that would be helpful? I think as we discussed, let's say, let's say projects. And let's say when you're going through it, you're going through your, your project proposal uh, checklist that we're kind of planning and training on. Okay, sustainability. So, for example, 0809 in Iraq, you know, the S7 that I was working with when I was a side guy had to go downrange for a couple weeks, essentially, and uh, do a 15-6. So I ended up taking over the 7 shop. And with that became one of the checklist signatures on the uh, approval sheet with the guys at the time. And, I mean, it blew my mind the amount of money that we were spending on projects that weren't sustainable. So training, for example, I circle back now and cognitive tell my guys that, you know, when you're planning projects, you know, think about sustainability. So let's say on the micro level, let's talk about, you know, a power substation in uh, Carrara. Okay. Western engineers go into Carrara. People identify a need, let's say, on the, the sweat MS for, for power. Completely logical. It makes sense. Western engineers go in with a Western mindset. and They build a beautiful Western-style home cost God knows how many millions of dollars that the unit before had spent God knows how many millions of dollars trying to set up. Now, the project's finished. They have a wonderful ribbon-cutting ceremony. Uh, you know, PA does some great stuff. You know, combat camera does some great stuff. But there's no part system, let's say, to go ahead and service, you know, that substation. Uh, you know, there's no workers that are trained to go ahead and keep it running and functional operational. And security in the area is so poor that it's going to get pilfered within the first month for copper. And that's what happens. So, you know, a month, two months later, power station is down. All the work that went into it is pretty much all for naught. You know, any material that could have been uh, stolen that was pulled down is stolen and now gone. And then the next unit comes in. And you know what? They want to do the same thing. So even let's say in that simple example on a micro level, uh, I would try to teach my guys and reiterate the importance of sustainability with projects and kind of seeing what's been tried through before and what hasn't. And then also it's critical. I think it's just on the historical management side of, let's say, our, our SEM process, we'll do a good job on that. So even, let's say, a CTC rotation we did last year, you know, on the back end of it, now we've got another one coming up in, uh, in February. You know, now me as the company commander, you know, one of the documents, let's say, from last rotation, because, you know, we're going back to you know, 
technology, essentially. So that's a redeployment, I guess, from uh, the Army standpoint. Okay, well, we have a baseline that we did before. Where's that baseline? And no one can find it. It's gone. So kind of reiterating to the guys that everything we do, if we don't capture it, uh, it's great effort, but, uh, you know, we're not capturing it. We're not documenting it. We're not going to help out our, our brother and sister on the back end. So I think it's that those two things. So sustainability of projects, uh, when they're doing their analysis would be one. And then two, I think would be at the SIM process, just the historical management would be another one too that I would highlight. Okay. Let's move on to your, and I, Oh, sorry. I just wanted to jump in there one second. So another good aspect of case studies is that they can either be very short or very long. Um, not very long, but you know, they can be a 30 minute discussion or they can be a three hour block instruction and they make really good hip pocket training or battle assembly training. So they're nice because you can kind of adjust the amount of time you're going to spend on them, um, without sacrificing too much in terms of like either wasted time spent on preparation or, uh, you're just not getting the full lesson from it. Does that make sense? It does. It, it does. And you know what? Even too, I mean, it's, uh, I had to think about this even too, but you know, it's a free rule exercise. Now all of a sudden it can be a, an exercise where you as a team, you give them the problem set as a team, they've got to kind of work through and develop, uh, well, basically problem solutions, answers. They can research it kind of, I guess, jobs the mind a little bit. And two, you know what? I would actually probably have a brief that and they get experience in you know, developing a brief and having a brief on it and have it to where we, you know, have them brief the uh, battalion commander and the CS officer basically briefing, uh, you know, higher ranking folks. I think having case studies is wonderful. And I would ask if you gentlemen in your unit, if you develop anything to share it more widely with, uh, use a KPOC for sure. Uh, also with the active duty units and we can use army knowledge online or some other portal to share those documents and share the experience. Yeah, that's a great idea going forward. Let's move on to your doctrinal reform, your proposal to increase doctrinal clarity by removing support to civil authority, SCA and removing national assistance, nation assistance, SCA core tasks. Could you talk about why you want to remove those two and what they would be replaced with? Yeah, so I see NA and SCA as, as doctrinally muddled at the present time. So it's hard to tell uh, where one ends and the other begins. I think that's incredibly problematic, both from a training standpoint and that, you know, it, it's kind of hard to get across to a soldier. This is what this does and this is what, you know, this is what option does, one does, and, and or pillar four and pillar five do. And so it's just hard for them to get a conceptualization of what their different tasks are. Um, and I think this is best exemplified by an example, right? So there are a lot of jobs where if you describe something and then ask a soldier, is this NA or SCA, they will have problems answering. Um, and I think that's problematic. So I think going forward, you should name your pillars after what you hope to accomplish, right? They should be goal-oriented terminology. Population research control, you're controlling population resources. FHA, you're doing foreign humanitarian assistance. SIM, the same. And then, so we add on, or we recommend three new pillars. Um, not any change in actually what we would do, but just in how we would phrase it, basically how we would uh, compartmentalize our tasks. And that is security assistance, governance assistance, and direct military governance. And that basically security assistance is, are you increasing the security uh, forces? Are you, are you working with security forces? If so, you're doing security assistance. Government assistance, the same, right? Are you working with a friendly government? Are you trying to increase their capacity in terms of rule of law or public health? 
that is governance assistance, unless it's a humanitarian crisis, in which case it's FHA. But those are different enough to understand that difference. And then direct military government is something that I think CA really needs to recognize could be a requirement in the future, right? So, you know, phase four military operations, there may be a requirement for CA to directly govern uh, in, in the vein of post-World War II Germany or Japan. And that's something that's right now kind of hidden under supports of civil authority, uh, just bracketed in. So supports civil authority both covers, hey, you're supporting a friendly government and you're doing your own government. Those are very different approaches. They're, they're very different jobs that you have to be able to do. So to have them under the same pillar is, in my opinion, probably Super. Major Markel, what do you think? No, I, I agree with Steiner. I mean, I think if you look at it, you know, we're, we're talking about earlier in the week, and I mean, he kind of touched on it, where you know, words have meaning. And I think it's the idea that if you don't really fully understand something, how can you go ahead, conceptualize it, visualize it, and then therefore plan and attack the problem set? I think, I, I'll tell you what, nine out of ten guys that I talked to, because we've been doing a little research here and kind of beating the brush, if I ask my guys, and these are smart guys, uh, both on the NCO side, soldier side, and the, the officer side, you know, what does this mean to you? And you get widely different answers and guys that have, have read the doctrine and they can spout the theory. That's not an issue. You know, they're smart guys. They understand the theory, but how do they actually apply that? Where does the rubber meet the road? I think if we tailor it, we make it more specific. I think you have a better chance of, of meeting that end state. And if, you know, the whole basically, you know, the sum is comprised of the whole of its parts. If let's say we take these two broad ideas, tailor them down, make them more specific, make them more digestible and understandable to the soldier on the ground. Therefore, they can attack it. They'll be more effective. And then in the end, you know, you'll have better result, let's say, for, you know, for NA, whatever we're going to call it. Um, and then also, too, I think it's the approach of it. It's more, to me, it's more strategic in nature. So the idea of nation assistance on a team on the ground, it's just too broad. So I think you need something that's more tailored to you know, basically the individual soldier. What kind of feedback have you received already from other soldiers in your units or the people you've been working with since you wrote this paper? I mean, it's, it's been positive. I think the guys that I've talked to in the company and at the battalion, you know, I think they're online with what our, you know, what the approach is. I think the biggest thing they say, and this is, I mean, it's just cross the board, it's a funding thing. Uh, case studies, for example, you know, NCOs say, that, hey, I would love more of this training. You know, when I went through my reclass, this wasn't highlighted. You know, I'd love to have that highlighted in my training. If I understood that more at my reclass, uh, it'd be better indoctrinated amaze uh, the soldier now that hits the unit. And then I could go ahead and try to cross-pollinate with you know the soldiers here that I'm leading as a, as a team sergeant. So that was very positive. Everybody is very supportive of the uh, you know, the internship mission. It's something you know a lot of them both just on a, on a experience side, let's say with life or with the army. You know a lot of the guys are pretty burnt out. Let's say we're just doing the standard NTC and JRTCs. They want something that's more it's more broadening. So they welcome it. They see the value in it. And even guys that are very busy, you know they're more than willing to go ahead and dedicate some of their time to go ahead and, you know, accomplish a mission like that that would give them and the unit a lot of benefit. It's good to hear. Sergeant Steiner, what have you heard from people uh, when you've been talking about the draft paper and what response have you received? A lot of my coworkers are Army guys, and I've kind of raised the issue about the doctrine. And they said, yeah, that sounds like it would be a problem, right? Just for me trying to explain to a retired lieutenant colonel what the five pillars of CA are, uh, we go on in these long patrols in the Sinai. This may be a, a side that won't make the final cut of the 1CA podcast. But there's a lot of driving <laughs> in our job, and so there's a lot of talking. 
in an armored vehicle. And, uh, you know, so we, we talked about what we're doing and this has been something that, that I was doing for a while. And so trying to describe my ideas for reforming civil affairs to arm, you know, retired, uh, mid-level army officers who, uh, have none of them are CA, you know, has been interesting in, in terms of what they've been giving feedback on. On the internships, they were probably supportive. They said, like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, if we could dangle this as a recruitment incentive to uh, an E4, or E5, trying to get out there, all active duty guys, but they don't really understand the reserve side. You know, they could say, you know, we would do this if, if some guy got 300 on the PT test or if CA wants to do this as a reward for something, right? So on the active duty side, you know, for a line infantryman, you do something really great. Maybe you go to airborne school, and they saw this as a corollary for that in CA. For for case studies, they were probably supportive. They were like, hey, yeah, this is a more intellectual role. Um, it's kind of hard to train. You know, these are like lanes, right? You know, not everything is as physical in civil affairs as it is in 11 Bravo or cavalry, which most of these guys are, you know, combat arms, retired combat arms. And on the, the doctrine side, just trying to describe to them what CA doctrine is now and how I want to change it. Uh, it may just be a manifestation of, of my bias, but they were probably supportive or maybe they were just humoring me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, you need to make the words match what your, what the meaning is, right? So I viewed it as if I'm coming in and trying to convince a supported infantry lieutenant colonel what I can do for him, then I should have core tasks and match what I can do for him and not have to explain what those core tasks are and, and what they really mean in this context. Right, and if you don't understand what they are, then you can't sell it. Correct. What if you, know, you got a guy that's incredibly bright, like Steiner over here, that's very experienced, been around the block here and there. Uh, he's have difficulty trying to wrap his head around, not difficulty wrapping head around it, but trying to understand it with specificity. Think about just your average guy from uh, 125 SPCT. He's going to go, hey, you know what? If I can't figure it out here in 30 seconds, waste my time and moving on to the next problem set. Now, all of a sudden, you're sidelined. So I think it's something that behooves us to go ahead and tailor it, uh, makes it more digestible, and make it to where we can uh, just we can target it more effectively. I think we can do that by making it more, more specific. Sergeant First Class Max Steiner and Major Mozzie Markell, authors of Developing Civil Affairs, Increasing Soldier Flexibility and Doctrinal Specificity, thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.